What's in a name? The Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this special series, Dr. David Angle and Dr. Gatra Priandita speak to special guests about the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership and the five pillars supporting it. In this final episode of the series, David and Gatra speak to the Honourable Tim Watts, Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs, and Dr. Dino Patti Jalal, founder of the Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia. They discuss changes in the bilateral relations over the years, including developments in the defence relationship, and how Australia and Indonesia can work together despite their different perspectives on strategic issues. Welcome everyone to this final episode of our podcast series on the Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. Today, Gatra and I are joined by two very special guests. First, from Indonesia, we have Dr. Dino Patijalal, who is Indonesia's most prominent commentator, I think, and one of its most influential exponents in the field of international affairs. A former senior diplomat and foreign policy advisor to President Yudhoyono, Park Dino has authored nine books and most recently founded the Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia, Indonesia's leading forum for debate and discussion on international policy. As Indonesia's ambassador in the United States from 2010 to 2013, he helped elevate the US-Indonesian bilateral relationship to a comprehensive partnership, if not perhaps a comprehensive strategic one at this point. As a practitioner then, as well as an activist and thinker, few in Indonesia could speak as authoritatively on this subject as Pak Dino. So welcome. Welcome, Dino. Thanks again for coming to us. It's my pleasure, David and Gatra here. We're equally privileged to have with us Tim Wamps, Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs in the Albanese government. Since being elected as a federal Labour member for Jelly Ground in 2013, Tim has held a range of positions, including Shadow Assistant Minister for Cybersecurity and Communications, a sector in which he also worked before entering Parliament. During his time in Canberra, he has been especially active in 1.5 dialogues with representatives from several Asian countries, including China, India, and of course, Indonesia. It's clear that his interest in Asia is both passionate and deeply personal, as his wife was originally from Hong Kong, and he has authored two books that inter alia explore Australia's changing national identity and relationship to our region. But welcome, Tim. Well, thanks for having me on and congratulations on the podcast. Well, thank you both of you for participating in the series. And let's hand over to, to Gatra. So to kick it off, the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership talks about Indonesia and Australia as strong partners in a changing world. How would each of you define this changing world today? And to what extent is this change set to make us closer or more distant partners? Perhaps we can start with Padino. Well, that's a very good question. When I joined the foreign ministry, 30 years ago, we didn't have relationship with China. And in fact, if I were caught talking to a Chinese diplomat, I would be fired. China was the enemy at the time. And now uh, China is a comprehensive and also strategic partner of Indonesia. You know, the same thing I could say about United States. Uh, there was some limits into our relationship with the United States decades ago. In fact, there was one government that uh, collapsed because it wanted to have defense relationship with the United States. This was way in the 50s. yeah. But now the United States counts as uh, also a comprehensive and strategic partnership of uh, Indonesia. Uh, the world really has uh, changed for Indonesia. Indonesia's uh, power, relative power, has grown. We're no longer a, a third world uh, poor 
uh, country that we were in the 50s or uh, 60s. Uh, now Indonesia is part of the G20, the largest economy in and Southeast Asia, and soon to become the fourth largest economy in the world, right, in two decades' time. And we live in a neighborhood whereby ASEAN has 10 members instead of five, and uh, ASEAN wants to be on the driver's seat of regional affairs, which is reflected in the ASEAN centrality concept. Right? So we noticed the world has really evolved, has really changed. I think that the most important uh, change for us is uh, the fact that we feel we live in a world where we have no enemy, no state enemies, and we can develop as many friends and partners as possible. And this is very different because my generation and the generation before live in a world where we did have enemies, perceived or real. Right? And, and a lot of our foreign policy and strategic resources were allocated to face those uh, perceived uh, adversaries and so 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 we live in a very different environment now and and one of those big changes is having australia as our strategic and comprehensive uh, partner and, you know australia is seen in indonesia as the closest western power to indonesia of course we have relations with uh, many western powers the uh, united states uh, the uk germany uh, and and so on uh, but the one that from indonesia's perspective is seen as the one closest to Indonesia and understands Indonesia the most and have uh, perhaps the closest relations uh, is Australia. What are your thoughts, Tim? Well, I think there are two streams of change that we're dealing with on the international stage at the moment. So bucket one, we've got the global challenges. We've got climate change, COVID and the economic recovery from it and the consequences of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Then we have specific regional changes. So that the challenge of sharpening geostrategic competition within our own region. I think from sitting where I, I do, that we've clearly seen Australia and Indonesia's partnership strengthen in the face of these global challenges. I mean, particularly during Indonesia's hosting of the G20, which focused closely on these issues. Australia strongly supported Indonesia's leadership of the G20 during this period including through 14 ministerial visits. Um, I was one of those ministers visiting in those ministerial sessions. But perhaps most significantly through Prime Minister Albanese's early commitment that he would attend the G20 in person in the face of international concerns of Vladimir Putin's potential attendance. And of course, this strong early backing for Indonesia's leadership helped build momentum at the broader level um, for leadership attendance that ultimately event eventuated. Um, and helped create the environment needed for the consensus statement that was ultimately achieved. We knew this was a big priority for Indonesia and, and Pak Jokowi that, that the G20 be a success, and we provided him with exactly the kind of support that you'd expect from a strong partner. I was listening to Pak Dino's comments there, and having been a participant in those ministerial um, meetings in the G20, that dynamic of Australia being Indonesia's closest friend in, in those multilateral forums was really observable to me. Now, in the context of sharpening regional geostrategic competition, I think it's fair to say that Australia and Indonesia are trying to uh, achieve the same objectives. Um, as Pak Jokowi said in his uh, joint press statement with Prime Minister Albanese in June of this year, the strong partnership, again, echoing the language um, in the comprehensive strategic partnership between Australia and Indonesia can, quote, contribute to peace and prosperity in the region and that we can promote respect for international law and norms in the region and that we can work together to ensure that strategic competition in the region is managed properly to avoid open conflict. 
Now, Prime Minister Albanese, following Park Jokowi's remarks, noted how aligned our objectives were to this end and that there's much that we can work together on in the pursuit of these objectives. So I think that the, the changes that Australia and Indonesia are both confronting, both globally and regionally, have, have drawn us closer together in this strong partnership. Um, so one of the defining features of this changing environment that you both talk about is great power competition, right? And, and the emergence of power politics is a defining feature of international relations. Can Australia and Indonesia address the strategic implications of great power competition as strong partners when one is a U.S. treaty ally and the other one is committed to non-alignment? Well, I think so. As uh, Tim has said, there's quite a lot of issues where the policies of Indonesia and Australia is uh, aligned. Obviously, Indonesia, by constitution, cannot enter into any military uh, alliances, but uh, there are a number of things that we can work together when we need to. Two strategic things that we've done. I remember Indonesia and Australia worked together to finalize the G20 summit format, for example. The world was in the midst of a global financial crisis. We were looking at different models on how to address it. And President Ido Yono was talking with Prime Minister Australia um, very intensively to make sure that it would be the G20 format that would be adopted, not the G11 or G13, for example. Right? Uh, so that uh, created lasting structure that uh, help the world economy to recover from the global financial crisis. But I, I think also one of the more important aspects, uh, counterterrorism, right? Um, remember the Bali bomb, uh, that affected Indonesia significantly, uh, the Bali bomb uh, in uh, 2002, right? And that was actually the most serious uh, threat that affected uh, Australians at that time, right? And both of us uh, place counterterrorism as the number one bilateral cooperation between our countries. And that really got us closer. Uh, you know, Indonesia has a lot of uh, strategic partnerships, yeah, comprehensive partnerships uh, around the world. But I would define comprehensive partnership as a relationship which has a soul in it, where the two sides really thought the others as partner and with high trust. And, and working towards a, a, a common goal, right? And this is what I saw, especially uh, during counterterrorism uh, cooperation and also during the tsunami event. Yeah? Indonesia and Australia became uh, a lot closer as a result. And I think obviously there's going to be some uh, differences in how we strategically perceive events in Asia and, and around the world. Uh, but I think our leaders and our officials benefited from learning each other's views. And, you know, we've had uh, plenty of those. And I think there are just many occasions where Indonesia and Australia work together to make a difference uh, in, in the region. One issue that I also recall was the Cambodian conflict yeah, and how Indonesian diplomats, uh, Ali Alatas, uh, Gareth Evans, really, really work together. They exchange views, exchange insights, uh, and push the envelope, the needle, significantly uh, to the point that uh, in the end they reach uh, the Paris uh, Peace Treaty. So so there are lots of scope for alignments and, and uh, working together, uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, we have different strategic orientations. What are your thoughts, Tim? Well, as Pak Dino was saying, it's no secret that Australia and Indonesia have different approaches to security alliance. Um, you know, Australia... Our alliance with the United States is foundational in our engagement with the world. 
but but that's okay. <laughs> There's still plenty that we can work together on. I mean, Australia, we one of the things that we are emphasising in our engagement in the region is that you know we believe that all states can and should make their own sovereign choices, and you know part of that is. Uh, making their own assessment of their own security priorities. You know, we won't try to dic- that, dictate that to anyone. We understand that different countries have different histories and different assessments of their, their national interests and different strategic contexts. What we're seeking in the region, seeking to build, and what I think is aligned with what Indonesia is seeking to build in the region is a strategic equilibrium where, where countries are, aren't forced to, to choose sides, where they can make their own sovereign choices including on alignments um, and partnerships. And we should look forward, uh, we look forward, Australia, to supporting Indonesia's priorities as the ASEAN chair in 2023. You know, we want a region where ASEAN and ASEAN-led institutions hold the centre. So we're talking about with ASEAN centrality because we believe that we all benefit from a world where rules, whether they're trade, maritime, environmental, uh, are clear, mutually negotiated and consistently followed. So we want a world where we're better coordinating with other partners now, including through minilateral groupings, and we think that that can better support ASEAN-led initiatives in the region. So we think it's an opportunity with Indonesia as chair of ASEAN where we can look forward to supporting implementation of particularly the maritime pillar of the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific uh, with practical uh, initiatives. Maritime cooperation is vital to Australia-Indonesian relations. We, we share the world's longest maritime boundary with Indonesia, and we have a long history of working closely and collaboratively uh, with Indonesia, whether that's on border protection measures or on fighting transnational crime, human trafficking, or in the management of our shared maritime resources. So I, I don't stress out too much about that, that different approach to security alliances. There is so much that Australia and Indonesia can do together in this space. And there's so much that we are aligned on um, when it comes to the objectives of the kind of region that we want to live in and that we want to help support and build. So I think we all would like to see the tensions that are obviously there under the surface frequently in uh, our, our region to be resolved through diplomatic means. We, we all want that and we, we understand the mechanisms that are in place to do just that. One part of comprehensive strategic partnership, however, is the defence relationship, because in the end, we can't get away from the fact that these tensions do have strategic dimension to them. One important conclusion that that, uh, people have made in discussing this is that uh, both sides see these security priorities and threats quite differently, especially with regard to China. How do you respond to that conclusion? And if you accept that premise that we see things very differently, where and how far can we take our defence and strategic relationship from here? China is the biggest story in Indonesian foreign policy in the last 20 years. I mean, if you look at all the countries that we have relationship, the one that has gained more mileage uh, diplomatically and economically to some degree politically, is China, yeah, relative to the United States, relative to Japan and others. Definitely Indonesia, when they see the future now, they see China, you know, in terms of our future uh, economic uh, uh, development, right? I mean, I'm talking about when we talk about China, we talk about uh, $10 trillion of imports that China will have. $500 billion of investment, $500 million tourists and so on. So Indonesians 
one a, a big part of that pie. But the challenge is also that uh, Indonesia wants to preserve its strategic autonomy, no matter how close we get uh, with China uh, economically. So Indonesians now are just developing an evolving China policy. Uh, we see China as an opportunity, but also as a challenge. Uh, you know, we have uh, our issues uh, with the Natuna, which really irks uh, Indonesian at the moment. But uh, again, there's a very different way on how Jakarta sees China and how Australia sees China. Uh, understand uh, the differences uh, in, in uh, these uh, perceptions. But of course, there are areas where we see eye to eye. Uh, we definitely want to uh, have freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, right? I mean, that is uh, important for our economic well-being and also for the regional trade. Yeah. So uh, we need to make sure that the freedom of navigation is totally respected and we want a rules-based uh, regional and world order that uh, Indonesia and Australia are committed to. And we want to maintain the ASEAN uh, centrality, which Australia supports as well. Yeah. So, uh, yes, there are differences between how Jakarta and, and Canberra sees China. But again, uh, Indonesia plays in different fields, uh, uh, David. You know, we have some kind of defense uh, relationship uh, with uh, Australia, you know, through the Lombok Treaty. We have uh, joint exercises with the United States. Uh, we have some degree of mill-mill um, uh, relations with China, although it's very, very small and at the exchanges level. Uh, and we have with India also a uh, mill-mill uh, relationship and, and so on. So uh, we are playing in, in different fields, uh, and, and that is a way for us to maintain our strategic autonomy. Yeah, so just listening to, to Pak Dino there, I mean, Australia and Indonesia, we, we want to live in a region that works in the same way. You know, we want a region um, where ASEAN centrality is at the core, uh, that's governed by a rules-based system, you know, fundamentally when it comes to things like the South China Sea by uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and a region where countries are able to make their own decisions, exercise their own agency and where their sovereignty isn't impinged. You know, where some of the, the, the differences um, emerge is in the way that we seek to pursue that region. And I think that that just underpins the importance of talking through um, the different approaches so that there's no misunderstanding about how we're trying to achieve that. You know, one of the, the areas in that respect, I think it's particularly important is respect with respect to AUKUS. AUKUS, from, from our perspective, from Australia's perspective, is about acquiring capabilities that will help us contribute to the strategic equilibrium um, that I'm talking about, where countries are free to make their own sovereign choices, free from coercion. Now, it's really important in that process, um, you know, a process of acquiring uh, nuclear-propelled but conventionally armed submarines, a capability that's already possessed by other nations in our region. It's really important that we actively and transparently engage with countries like Indonesia to you know, step through the way we think about um, that acquisition and the region um, and to engage with any concerns that are raised. You know, we know that Indonesia has a deep commitment to the MPT, as Australia does, and, and we want to you know, really deeply engage with Indonesia about, you know, the, the kind of 
um, benchmarks that Australia expects to set in engagement with the IEA on accountability and verification frameworks for that acquisition. So the, the differences, they don't need to be a problem, I think, so long as we are aligned on the objectives we're trying to achieve and we're being open, active and transparently engaged in, in talking through um, those, those different starting points. Yeah. And I should can say I, we've got a lot of progress on, on AUKUS, um, yeah. more certainly under this government um, in, in, the, in the recent times by doing that, by actively and transparently engaging about what our intentions are and the way we will go about it and listening to concerns um, expressed in the region. Can I just add to that, uh, Tim? Whenever we, we uh, have uh, these kind of developments, I found that there was sometimes problem of communication. And I remember when I was in government, I attended a press conference by my president, Yudo Yono at the time, and he was asked by journalists, uh, President Yudono, what, what do you think about America's plan to send uh, Marines uh, to Darwin? <laughs> Right. And he looked at me like I'm an idiot. And I was an idiot because I didn't know anything about it. Right. And that was the first time we heard about it. Right. You know, we were explained about this later on. And this did became a uh, you know big news uh, in Indonesia. And uh, I think both the Americans and the Australian side uh, sort of apologized, saying, hey, we should have told you earlier and so on. Uh, and, and on August, it was sort of like that also. It was a surprise. And, you know, there was, uh, I think uh, the, uh, the, we had a two plus two in Jakarta at the time. And, uh, you know, we did not know about this, that this would be announced and, and so on. So so I think, uh, yeah, in, on episodes like this, uh, communication uh, would always be appreciated by, by, by the Indonesian side. Yeah. So just uh, moving on to the economic relationship now, uh, several of our guests, as well as many other observers, have pointed out a principal shortcoming in the relationship is the relatively paltry uh, commercial relationship and that this needs to be bolstered if we are to really have a comprehensive and strategic partnership. Now, the CSP goes to this, as does the Indonesia-Australia uh, Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, or ISMPA, and the Albanese government has sought to encourage Australian investment in Indonesia as part of this, including by encouraging superannuation industry to sort of invest uh, in Indonesia. But there are still serious barriers to improved economic relations, ranging from a lack of trade complementarity and institutional and political issues that make it unappealing for some tra to trade or invest in the other country. Um, what do you both think needs to be done in order to narrow the gap between aspiration and reality in the economic sphere? So, so no one doubts the, the scale of the unrealized opportunity here. It, it's in fact a cliche at, at this point. I'd say that IASEPA is important. It's our most significant piece of economic architecture and it does deliver a wide range of tangible benefits for trade and investment between our countries. It's a good agreement um, and the architectural framework is there to, to deepen these trade and investment ties. The reality though is that agreements alone don't deliver trade and investment themselves. In fact, governments don't either. I would argue companies don't either. You know, in the final analysis, what delivers trade and investment between countries is people. You know, people with relationships of understanding and trust, people who recognise opportunities and are willing to engage in a, a cross-border transaction with counterparts that they understand and trust in order to pursue it. So that's, I think, the real challenge for us to build at this point. We've got the, the architecture there. Now we need to develop the people-to-people the -people connections. I think the Prime Minister's very early visit to Indonesia alongside a, a very large... <laughs> 
uh, retinue of, of fellow travellers, the foreign minister, the industry minister, um, a range of CEOs from some of Australia's largest companies, the, the leaders of some of our biggest business and industry groups, um, leaders of our superannuation funds subsequently in subsequent delegations. That's been really important as a signalling from the top, but also an exposure for those people um, who are making those decisions. I think also important is the appointment of Nicholas Moore, um, the former CEO of Macquarie as the special envoy, who's been charged with developing a Southeast Asia economic strategy to 2024 that will identify emerging opportunities for, for two-way trade and investment. But importantly, that will be informed by a quite extensive campaign of uh, consultations in the region, um, including particularly in Indonesia with business and other stakeholders. So Australia is also engaging with business leaders and businesses in, in a variety of ways to ensure that ISEPA has increased take up. So that's including things like sort of sector specific events across Australia um, for businesses interested in maximising the benefits of ISEPA. And when you look at the verticals, I think the story becomes easier to tell. You, know, you look at the, the health vertical and you see what Asthma Medical is doing. You look at the education vertical and you see what Monash is doing. The, the kind of trailblazers are modelling, I think, the kinds of trade and investment that we can see. Um, and it's up to leaders, I think, to, to really put that up in lights and point the way for people coming along behind. Look, first, uh, you know, it's very hard for some reason. It's, it's, it has been hard over the years to significantly elevate the trade relations between Indonesia and Australia. But I should say that for some reason, uh, this is a pattern of Indonesia's relations, trade relations with the West. Uh, Western countries, uh, for example, but the United States, uh, when I was ambassador there, it was at about $26, $27 billion, right? Uh, and this was uh, 10 years ago. And if you look at the number now, it doesn't change much from that. It's probably $29, $30 billion. And with Australia, it's also somewhat moving just around that line, yeah? So, so it has been a challenge, and I believe this is why we have the IA. Uh, SIPA arrangement uh, to see if this can be uh, boosted. Uh, I am hopeful because uh, look, look at Australia's trade with Malaysia, uh, look at Australia's trade with, with Thailand, which is a lot more than what they trade with Indonesia, yeah, despite the fact that Thailand and Malaysia has smaller population, right? So if, if Malaysia and Thailand can have uh, those numbers, uh, I'm sure Indonesia can too. We just got to find what is that trigger, right? Uh, what is that trigger? Uh, I think... Uh, Services, uh, as uh, uh, Tim said, uh, is very promising. Uh, Australia is wild, widely popular for Indonesian students uh, to go to study. And in fact, there are more Indonesian students in, in Australia than, the, than in the United States uh, or, or China. Uh, but we really need to get the non-oil and gas uh, export uh, numbers uh, up for Indonesia. Yeah? Our total trade is about 11 billion. Uh, this is the figure for 2022. Out of that, the non-oil export to Australia is about 2.7 billion. So that needs to be doubled or tripled. Uh, you know, with China, we have a, a target system somehow. Uh, so as I told you, uh, with the U.S. is 30 billion, with China is over 100 billion, and they keep establishing targets, right? Uh, 150 billion, uh, the next benchmark, and so on, right? Uh, and I, I believe, uh, you know, we can have the same 
the same uh, targeting benchmark with with Australia as well. But it really needs uh, a strong effort by the private sector. I think the problem is uh, Indonesians when they see trade and investment opportunities, they see north. Right. They see uh, Japan, China, Korea and Australia is seen as a smaller market, uh, 25 million people. Right. But I see investment as uh, really uh, huge opportunities. Uh, informally, I've been uh, talking to a lot of Australian investors. There's one who wants to build a hospital uh, in Indonesia. There's one who uh, is bidding for uh, telecommunications towers and, and, and so on. And there's just a lot of them who are you know, doing a lot of different things. Uh, so I think uh, on the investment side, there's uh, a lot of opportunities uh, for Australians, uh, for greater Australian engagement in Indonesia. Just on, on the idea of in, embedding ourselves economically, part of this whole discussion really goes to the knowledge of each other's country, because that's fundamental in terms of questions like investment flows. Many observers have considered the relationship would not advance to a more mature and sincere level unless many more Indonesians and Australians have a more sophisticated and informed understanding of each other's nation. Now, do you agree with that contention? And if so, what else should both countries be doing about expanding the understanding and boosting people-to-people ties? Yeah, well, I definitely agree. Look, with Australia, when we see the relationship, the key is uh, we have close diplomatic uh, consultations. The business and investment is rather uh, low, but the strongest part is the people-to-people. So, so that's how we see it from Jakarta. Yeah, when I go to uh, Australia, I I met in Perth, in in Canberra, in Sydney. I, I met many Indonesians working in restaurants and say, "Hey, but you know, what are you doing here?" Oh, I'm, and they said, "I'm on a working holiday uh, visa. I think you have a special program uh, on that, right?" And if you go to Sydney or Melbourne or Perth, uh, you can hardly go anywhere without seeing an Indonesian, either as uh, tourist students or workers uh, in a restaurant, uh, places like that, you know. So it's really uh, the most rich and condensed part of our relationship. And I I really like it uh, that way. I I went to a university in uh, Lombok, I think, yeah. University of Mataram, and I talked to the lecturers. Almost all of them studied in Australia. And you know how that changes the texture of our relations. And believe me, our relationship will have ups and downs in the future, just as it has been in the past. And you know, strong neighbors always have up and down relationship, right? Depending on, on what issues of the day. But what I find different now is that this close people-to-people relationships sort of uh, add resilience to the relationship, right? Uh, you know, we, we had some issues uh, in, in the past and so on. Um, but I find that uh, there is a large core group of Australian communities and Indonesian communities who know each other well and who are willing to defend their relationship uh, and, and so uh, get uh, the boat uh, more on a stable uh, path, right? Uh, during difficult times, right? So, so yes, I, I, I do agree that we need to uh, bolster people-to-people relationship, and and we need to keep working on the misperceptions. Uh, I think there was some polling in Australia that says that uh, you know Indonesia is uh, I don't know what was the term, but not seen as a friendly country 
or some Australians still think Indonesia is not a democracy. That it was still uh, you know, a country of uh, you know authoritarian days. Uh, that's definitely not true. Uh, or uh, many Australians see Indonesia through the prism of Bali. You know, I guess that's uh, unavoidable, right? Uh, but we need to keep uh, educating uh, our respective peoples on the merits of the other sides. Yeah, oh, look, I absolutely agree. The pathway to a more sophisticated um, and informed understanding of each other's countries is through people-to-people connections. And as Pak Dina was saying, the people that already um, embody those people-to-people relations are our best asset at the moment. This view that the, the people-to-people connections are the best way to understanding uh, was the view put by SBY in his fantastic speech to the Australian Parliament back in 2010. really had an impact on me as a younger man. Unfortunately, it's just as true <laughs> what he said uh, today as it was then. I mean, I, I think we clearly need to get uh, more people moving backwards and forwards between our countries. You know, that that's the way that particularly Australia gets to know other countries. So ISEPA's skills package, I think, is an important uh, doorway in that respect. I, I really welcomed the increase in the working holiday visas to 5000 a year for, for Indonesians in that package. That was something that I was calling for, for for many years in the parliament before it happened. And similarly, the skills and development exchange pilot and the workplace skills training program in ISEP are worthwhile and they're really important that both Indonesia and Australia work together to fully realise those opportunities. But I think it's really important to emphasise that, that leaders have got to create the demand as well as the opportunity. So it's incumbent on leaders on both sides of the relationship to really sell the opportunity to their domestic audiences to, to create a sense of excitement about the possibilities um, within the relationship. I think it's important for leaders to model this engagement as well. I mean, it's not that much remarked on as far as I can see, but I'm pretty confident that the current government would have the highest number of Bahasa Indonesian speakers in our history. You know, Chris Bowen, Stephen Jones, Luke Gosling, um, then you have people like Penny Wong and Sam Lim, who speak Bahasa Meliu, a number of MPs, like people like Andrew Lee, who've lived in Indonesia. So I, I think that at that that representational level, um, leaders are, are modelling uh, that the relationship in a way that they haven't in the past. Indeed, there's a Bartik frat pack in Parliament that any time there's an Indonesian visitor, we all we all grab our best Bartik from the wardrobes um, at Parliament House now. We don't need much of an excuse to do it. And I think that's that's a bit of a new thing. I think young people are a really big opportunity in people-to-people connections. We know how young Indonesia is and that that burgeoning millions of young, educated, middle-class Indonesians. The Bahasa Indonesia program at Williamstown High in my electorate, just down the road from where I am now, has opened the minds of hundreds of young Aussies to Indonesia over the years, particularly through their sister school relationship with a, that has a reciprocal exchange relationship with Lab School in, in Jakarta. And it's given these local kids a taste of life in Indonesia that will stay with them forever. You know, they, they fall in love with the place um, and vice versa. I, I have to say, I'm always amused seeing the Indonesian kids arrive in Williamstown uh, with their full ski jackets, um, with a few perceptions about how cold the weather is down here in Melbourne and slowly understanding that maybe you don't always need a ski jacket to live in, in Melbourne. It's a little win for the relationship every year. Uh, but we, we need a lot more of it because it, it's that experience of living in another country gives you an understanding you can never get from a book or a course. I mean, one of my favourites down here in Melbourne are the, the Krakatoa Australian Rules Football Club, which is a, you know, it's a Aussie Rules Football Club comprised of, you know, young Indonesian students and professionals and Aussies. And, you know, what they're learning together about each other on a footy field, 
you know, you, you couldn't bottle it. It's just magic for the relationship. They're, they're a great young group of people uh, and an important part of our relationship between our countries. Just to follow up, Tim, on that, I mean, I know uh, your government hasn't been in power for much of the last 25 years, but in that period of time, we have seen a notable decline in the amount of Indonesian language training, studies, not language studies of Indonesia, for that matter, other parts of Asia. We've seen a decline, a falling back in this. And for someone like me and many people I know, that's that's not the way we should be going. And it, it does, I think, have an impact on the way Australians perceive the country. Any thoughts about what we need to do more in that? Can your government do more when it comes to these areas? In education, for example. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's exasperating. I, I think it's right to say that uh, there are fewer Australians studying Bahasa Indonesia today than when Whitlam was Prime Minister. You know, there are 8 million more Australians today. Now, that's not a Indonesia-specific trend. You know, that's a, it's a Catholic trend across all Asian languages, in fact, across all languages. Um, and there are multiple factors driving that. But I, I'm certainly of the view that, that language is foundational and that it's something that we should be more broadly promoting. You know, we put more money into ACHESIS, the Australian um, uh, Consortium for In-Country Indonesian Studies, with a direct objective of, of increasing those studies. I've, I held a roundtable on Asian languages and literacy um, leading into the Jobs and Skills Summit. Um, with, with experts in Australia hearing their perspectives, including, I should say, a teacher from the Williamstown High Bahasa program, giving that first-hand experience of what it's like to recruit students and, you know, try to grow a program like that in the current environment. And I'm certainly engaging in ongoing conversations uh, with the Skills Minister and, and, and ultimately with Jobs and Skills Australia when it's formally established. The Comprehensive Partnership is at its core a document that reflects deep aspirations about what the relationship could become uh, but, you know, what do you see is the strategic purpose of the CSB? And if you had your time as Vice Minister again for Foreign Affairs, uh, what would you prioritise in your relationship? And what do you see as key to making this partnership as truly strategic as it is comprehensive? Okay, well, before I answer that, I just want to add a little bit on, on the previous uh, uh, topic, uh, which is uh, that the Indonesian uh, diaspora in Australia is really the most dynamic of all Indonesian diasporas worldwide, right? Uh, you know, I'm also the chairman of Indonesian uh, diaspora organization, and we keep in contact with them, and they are, they are incredibly, incredibly active, right? Some of them are Australian citizens already, as many are still Indonesian citizens, but they do a lot of things business-wise, culturally, socially, you know, and um, there's a uh, some Indonesian Australian artists as well. I think there's somebody named Jessica Mauboy here, and so on, you know. And uh, so, so they really uh, capture uh, public imagination in, in Indonesia. I think the relationship should make use of the diaspora connections, uh, you know, uh, a lot more uh, for now and, and, and in the future. Uh, and secondly, to ask to answer your question about uh, the comprehensive and strategic partnership. I, I want to remind you how far we've come along Yeah, since 1999. You know, in 1999, I was still in government back then, and East Timor parted from Indonesia. And I, I tell you, there was a, a lot of uh, uh, a bad feeling at that time. And Indonesia-Australia relations uh, just fell into uh, a, a low. I think one of the lowest point of their relationship 
uh, for many reasons, right? Uh, but the psychological and political relations between the two countries were very bad, yeah. And we recovered very quickly from that, yeah, to the point that we are now comprehensive and strategic partners. You know, Australia came to our aid for during the tsunami, right? And we work even closer during the uh, aftermath of the Bali bomb and, and, and so on. So, so really, uh, Australia, I can tell you, is, is one of the closest countries for Indonesia, diplomatically, yeah, especially diplomatically. Right? So, so I think for foreign policy people, that, that is very valuable because comfort level with Australia has been restored. It's very high now. President Jokowi, you know, he has obviously many friends, but the ones that he talked to often, Right. And, you know, diplomatic relations are good when our leaders talk too often by phone and, and, and other and other relations is uh, with the prime minister of Australia, uh, including prime minister Albanese, uh, of course. Yeah. Trust is high. Confidence is high. Comfort level is high. And when you have that, you can achieve a lot of things. Uh, you, you can work on, on a lot of issues. Uh, I remember I went to New York uh, several years ago and our diplomats in New York said that, hey, the closest diplomats that we work with and we see eye to eye, we're always on the same page, uh, is the Australian diplomat. And, you know, I thought that was a very good uh, indication of uh, how special our relationship uh, has become. Uh, you know, I don't wish to lecture uh, if I was vice minister of what to do, uh, but I think the biggest opportunity is in diplomatic, you know, see what we did for the G20, for example how we work together uh, for APEC and Cambodian uh, conflict, uh, South China Sea and, uh, and others. I think diplomatic is uh, the biggest strength of our relationship. And, and secondly, definitely uh, people to people and economic. I would love to see Indonesia and Australia uh, become really economically uh, embracing each other, you know, uh, very strong business to uh, business ties. Uh, in agriculture, uh, already that's already happening. Yeah, a lot of our wheat come from Australia. Uh, in cows, uh, in in AI, in uh, e-commerce, uh, and and so many different things. Uh, I really think we can achieve a much closer economically Indonesia and Australia. Well, Tim, you are in government now, and no one in the current government understands better the importance of the region, not only to Australia's interest, but also to this nation's very sense of itself of its identity and of its future. So how much do you share Dino's view of the CSP's ultimate purpose and what priorities are you identifying towards achieving that objective? Well, look, I'd, I'd start by saying I, I couldn't agree more with Park Dino's co comments about the levels of trust at the leadership and diplomatic level at the moment. I can say firsthand, I, I, I know how touched um, the Prime Minister Albanese was by um, Pak Jokowi's gift of the bamboo bike and the symbolism that attached to that at the time. And I know that not just simply because he's told many people how touchy he was by it, but, you know, I was at the lodge recently and that bamboo bike is on display in the dining room of the lodge. Um, you know, it's something that clearly has uh, a special uh, place in the heart of the, of the Prime Minister. I think for me, when I look at the, the priorities for the CSP going forward, if, if, if I could sort of choose one priority, I think it's the people to people because I think everything else flows from that if we can expand that and build on that. And I think that the probably the, the best way to build those people to people is through education. You know, I think uh, Prime Minister Albanese, when he was uh, giving his address at Hassanuddin University in Makassar, 
earlier this year, he said that education should underpin all of our efforts in the relationship. And by that, he meant that he recognised Pak Jokowi's objectives on the development task in Indonesia and on the fighting inequality, while also understanding that international education inherently promotes uh, trust and understanding and respect between our countries. It was, it was apt, though, that the Prime Minister Albanese was able to deliver his address at Hassanuddin University because he was able to speak in the presence of the rector there, uh, Professor Jamaluddin Jompur, who was an alumnus of James Cook University um, and one of 152 Australian alumni on the staff there at the university. If we can create more microcosms like that, if we can create more hubs of that density of people-to-people connection, you know, the relationship will be in good hands. And I I recognise the size of the Indonesian student population in Australia compared to other destination markets for Indonesian students. But compared to other incoming uh, student markets in Australia, it could grow a lot. And and I look at the the Indian market in particular, which, you know, people forget around 2012, 2010, that kind of period was at a real nadir, was very, very low um, and has really exploded over the last 10 years, grown extraordinarily. And I think if we had the ambition to grow the numbers of Indonesian students in the same way, that would be really transformative uh, for education, for people-to-people connections and for the relationship more broadly. Uh, Or, or, I should say, Indonesian students studying at Australian institutions in Indonesia, uh, like the Monash campus, which is an important trailblazing campus, I think, and a real credit to the institution for pursuing that. Well, thank you again to you both. It's been a great privilege to have both very senior people as part of this, including the serving Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs and a former Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, uh, Gatra. Thank you, Tim. Karamakasi. That's a wrap on this episode and this special series. We look forward to bringing you more insights in 2023. Thanks for listening.